You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. If you've been watching the show, we are amazed to see you back again for our summer series. And if you guys are new to the show, where have you been all your lives? This is the place to be. <laughs> but anyway, thank you guys for joining us. For all of you who are not familiar with the Changing Reality, is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So through this show, we'll be interviewing and hanging out with all kinds of people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, uh, thought leaders, business owners, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and many here from the Penn campus as well. So by hearing their inspiring stories on how they actually managed to create such huge changes, not only in their lives, but the lives of those around them, whether it's clients, friends, people, uh, stakeholders, we'll hopefully be able to draw out some of those lessons and apply them in our own lives as well, so that we can shorten our own learning curves and plot the courses to the lives that we want to achieve. And I wanted to do this show simply because I believe that there are so many people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm passionate about uncovering the stories of how they got to where they are today, what made them who they are in a sense, and who are the people behind the research, behind the, the things that we often see on camera. And through these conversations, I know that we can unlock so many amazing lessons that, as I said, will change our own lives at the very least. And to show you how much I believe in the power of these stories, personally, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance uh, back at home where I'm from in Malaysia that today works with over 28 countries, our own Malaysian Ministry of Education and many others to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality, whether they're in elementary school or college in a sense. And we do this through sessions, experiential learning projects, uh, workshops, programs. And so far, we've been able to impact over 35,000 students from 700 over uh, 35,000 students, 750 communities, and from uh, an amazing 28 countries where we've been able to actually develop social impact projects and social enterprises actually run by students aged 8 to 25 years old themselves. And the basis for all of that has actually been stories. It's been kind individuals who've been taking their time out to share those experiences, to share their expertise with someone who may not have the opportunity to hear it otherwise. And just like that, I hope that this show is that same platform for you so that each and every single one of you can listen, learn, sit back and relax and hopefully get the gems from their experiences that may just change your life. So if there's anything that you want to talk about, any topics or if there's any sessions that you want to discuss, let us know in the comments or, or let me know um, on our radio chat as well. And we'll do our best to take them as much as we can. So with that, we shall move into our main feature for today, today's interview in a sense. We have someone who is truly phenomenal, uh, who is acclaimed globally for his exploration of paradigm shifting analytics that illuminates our understanding of customer relationships and uh, how data in organizations actually, uh, actually work in a way and actually drive these relationships with customers. Our speaker is sought internationally as not only a keynote speaker, but also a lecturer at top business schools, including here at Wharton, and is a contributor to multiple patents. Furthermore, he's also Google's chief measurement strategist and, a and their global head of customer analytics. He pioneers strategies for customer lifetime value, marketing attribution, dynamic pricing, and so many other things as well. And 
Through his work, he's actually uh, led more than 2,500 engagements with the world's biggest advertisers at his time at Google. And his efforts have helped these companies acquire millions of customers, improve conversion rates by more than 400%, and generate billions in incremental revenue. His book, Converted the Data-Driven Ways to Win Customers' Hearts, was actually published earlier this year in February 2022, and has gone on to create a storm among the industry and among the experts themselves. So today we're meeting the person behind the magic, in a sense. Without further ado, let's bring our amazing guest speaker onto the virtual stage. So hello, <laughs> how are that you was, doing? That was a great introduction. I was wondering, did you do like introductions for hire? I think that may have been the best reading of my biography. Generally, people kind of plod along. It's like, and Neil does this, this, and this. That that carried a lot of enthusiasm. Well, it's great to have you on the show. That just like I've been reading your book, so I am totally a fan. I'm converted into your many legions of fans, and hopefully, I'm sure from this session, many others will be as well. So I'm genuinely enthusiastic about this introduction, but Thank that's you. a total lie from you. you. You've had so many amazing talks, so many amazing sessions. I can't even believe that this would be a, a speck on the radar for you. At the very I least. appreciate it. No, 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 you can never get too much of it. But that, that was genuine. That was like in the top five. Like, so I, I appreciate it. I was like, oh, that sounds, sounds good. It sounds, it sounds like me without being like overly arrogant and, and dry. So I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> All right, all right. You, you, like, I'm professional hype man. You can get me for your that shows. Yes, yeah, that, yeah. That is a good title. Yeah. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us on the show. As I said, we have these sessions because probably, like me, many people have read your work, have, have, have followed you on LinkedIn with your amazing, like, like, information that you put out and have been thinking, oh my gosh, how does a person become that smart and intelligent and well concise in a sense? And for a lost college student like me and many of the audience watching this, it can seem like a very far and very, uh, I would say, offset road towards being even a smidge as, as, as uh, great at the industry as you are, in a sense. So today, hopefully, we'll uncover some stories that make us feel a little better about our lives and gives you an outlet <laughs> to, to share some of those things with us, too, in a way. So maybe we can wind back to um, where you started, really, in this journey. I mean, data is a huge thing right now. Um, everyone wants to get into it. But I'm assuming that when you first started in the industry, it was not exactly as popular as it is today in a sense where everyone goes fevered crazy over it. So how did you even know that this was something that you want to get into? Did you know all the way from uh, kindergarten no. you planning no, this? You don't. You don't. I think I think there's a portion of people that that know when they're younger exactly what they want to do with their life. They're that passionate about it. And I have a certain amount of envy for those people because at least in my mind, their life seems simple, right? I want to do this. I love doing this. I'm going to go do this. And it's a benchmark, especially with parents that make them proud. Is to say like, oh, he knows exactly. He, he or she My wants to be a doctor or a lawyer. They want to do. And they're just going to do it. And I think even, you know, now as a parent, it makes the, it makes a career management process really easy because you know that direction. Contrasting it, you, you see some, some students who are like, I have no idea. And I can see the frustration in, again, in parents and saying, well, you know, how do we help someone? Because at that point, you're trying to picture what will they do? What will their career be like? And then in the middle, you just have kind of like 80% of students, it seems, whether they admit it or not. Uh, I think there's a lot where we want to admit to other people that we have that direction we want to admit to ourselves. And then, you know, you, you look inside and you're like, where is this going to come out? And I, I, I think for a lot of students, what it becomes is a process of elimination. 
which is a sense that the longer you stay in your current major, your current discipline, <laughs> the more you are committed to that path. Like, uh, I really don't like it, but I've been here for three years, so I guess I'll do something. And then the, the other part is, is kind of money. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, I want to make a lot of money. So that narrows down some more passionate pursuits that you might have simply to say, well, this this pays more. And you can make those those moral justifications to say, yeah, well, we're going to go do this because I'll make a little bit more money. And then later on, I'll find what I love. Uh, I was I was never uh, destined to be in data. In fact, if you told me back when I was an undergrad that this is what I'd be doing, it would be impossible for me to to draw that line and say, well, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave school. And I'm going to go work in this field for a few years and then do this. That's not how life works. Um, so my my pursuit was rather serendipitous, which was to say there were different points of my career where I knew I wanted to do something different. And so most of my progression was not a purposeful pursuit of saying after year three, I'll do this. After year four on graduation, I'll do this. It was just knowing at certain parts of my career that something needed to change in a large way. Uh, which was to say, when I was working in Chicago, and that's after I left undergrad, I really did the entrepreneurship thing, where it was primarily technology consulting, which doesn't scale at all. It's like quick, immediate cash, and then you lose one client, and then your revenue goes down like 30%, and it's miserable. But at that point, knowing to say, look, I don't want to do consulting for my entire career. Uh, I don't want to stay in the Midwest. There's so much happening in other parts, the East Coast, the West Coast. How do I make that transition? And it was, oh, well, I should go back to school. That, that was really my solution for it. It was to say, all right, well, now I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to go learn some more stuff. And then you go out and you learn a whole bunch of stuff. And then that question is, all right, well, now where can you apply it in a way that's interesting? So a way that not only gets paid, but for me, it was a transition to say, I don't really want to stay in Los Angeles. Weather, incredible, traffic, miserable. <laughs> it, it wasn't home. I, I still love it, but it was, I want to get into Silicon Valley. And so that was the next big leap was to say, well, let's try with a company in Silicon Valley. So that way you can start interacting with people. And sure enough, when I did that, then it's like, hey, I want to start interacting with people at, at different tech companies. You meet people at Google and you're like, hey, this makes sense. I'm going to leave my job and go to Google. I don't know what I'm going to do at Google. We can talk about that. Um, but just kind of those large leaps to know here's a large opportunity that I want to pursue and you don't necessarily know how everything's going to connect later on. And in fact, if I did this again, it could come out in a thousand different ways. But I generally feel confident about the likelihood of success just because of what I was prioritized on. It was more around learning and growth and doing big things than it was a predefined career path that I sent 20 years prior. All right. So I feel everyone who has those 20 year plans are sending it to the shredder right now and just ripping. Them hey, off. If, they, if they have it, that's fine. Like if you're an entrepreneur and you have a business plan, that is fine. And and I say that because there's some value in going through the exercise. Like yeah, most, you were most, an entrepreneur as well, right? I, I was. I was. And most venture capitalists, yeah. they don't admit this right away, but they know most of the business plans are garbage. <laughs> what they're really looking for is they're saying, look, are, did the people in front of me, did they think through? The problem? Did they think through what could happen, how these numbers could look? Are they aware of the different dynamics in the market that could affect their work? Because if they are, then I have confidence that they can adapt to those circumstances. I, I think that too many people look at it as a, almost coming out of school, you look at it as a test, right? Did I get a, a zero or a hundred? How precise were my numbers and my market plan? You can't, you can't predict the future. And if you could, I would hope you would do something better than a dot-com company. <laughs> then maybe I mean, you should get it 
predicted the Adar Innocence. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, if you could start predicting shit, it'd be like, go, go, tell me what, I don't know, what's this week bad for crypto? Go, go buy some crypto or something or some new market. But it, it's an exercise. And for people that go through the career development process, if your method of working is, I'm going to sit down and think about that framework and think about that structure and how my life fits into it, if that allows me to contemplate the possibilities of what could go wrong and how I should change, then by all means do it. The only time that I, exer that I exercise caution when I look at those is also to say, I don't want anyone to be so rigid that if a new opportunity comes up, that you say, no, 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 we need to stay the course with my current plan, which sometimes I'll be happy to admit comes from externalities. It's like you may see a great opportunity, but you sold everybody. And like your, your parents are all on board with you taking this direction. And now you're saying, no, 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 there's a huge opportunity here. How do I justify it? And I think that's where people start to feel boxed in. No, that's a very good point in a sense. Tell us a bit about the first venture that you had out of uh, college in a sense. You mentioned it. I know you ran oh, it. Oh, it was miserable. So what? What? That is not the answer I was expecting. It was, it was miserable. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think that there's a certain attractiveness for entrepreneurship uh, mm -hmm. with people, especially college students, because you sidestep a lot of the bureaucracy, a lot of the organizational structures that limit your growth. Uh, and for some people, myself included, when you see companies giving presentations, they're like, "And here's your career broken down into two year increments." <laughs> You're kind of looking at it to say, "No, no, no. I I, I don't want to get to this part when I'm 50." I want to get there by the time I'm like 25, 30. And sometimes entrepreneurship is the only way to kind of sidestep those systems and say, I want to build something else. Uh, but the trade-offs are significant. The trade-offs on, you know, opportunities lost, uh, capital invested, time lost on, on what is an uncertain venture is difficult. And so I don't look back at it with any particular fondness apart from the learnings. I think the learnings were invaluable to go through that exercise to know what small, medium-sized businesses, what entrepreneurs face. But I don't think from like a career side to be and be like, wow, this is such a positive ROI. I think you you pay dearly for that education. So it's not like it, it's an itch you have to scratch. I just wish there were a Harvard Business School professor pointed this out to me one time where he said, I wish there were more people that talked about their entrepreneurial failures. Because oftentimes the people we put on the pedestal are the people that succeed. And it seems sometimes like those are the only people we see. Everybody can succeed. And they talk in these very broad sense. Well, I... I, I did this and I got into this program and then VCs gave me money. And you're like, wow, look how simple it is. And I'm not, I'm not taking down any of that optimism or that ambition. Just my experience is that a lot of the value from it is less about building and selling a successful venture for the people that do it. Fantastic. But I think a lot comes just from the learnings and those experiences, which are hard, which are difficult, which are invaluable. But you mm -hmm. still have to look at it from that lens to say, you know, uh, from a binary, my metric of success is, do I sell my company? Do I raise another round of funding? Do I go public? Uh, I think those are just a very, very small fraction of the people that go into that space. No, no, very, very well explained. Um, since you brought it up, the best moment as an entrepreneur that you had and best failure that you had from it, in a sense, if you could pick one each. Best, best success was I didn't have to go through the traditional job hunting process. <laughs> This is now immortalized in records, and that's fine. And so for all the HR people out there that are starting to, dear Mr. Hoyan, I tell them, this could be Google HR people, dear Mr. Hoyan, you, I, I think the hiring process for most companies is incredibly inefficient. I don't think they recognize the value of what students, especially graduating students, can bring to their organization. And so they apply very simple heuristics. 
here was a school they went to. Here was their GPA. Here's how they interviewed people, which, by the way, all the data supports that there's nobody that's good at interviewing. You know, and you can get this out of executives, by the way, because if you ask them a question, who's good at interviewing, you'll get 95% of executives will raise their hand. If you ask it in a different way and say, how many people here have hired poor people, poor performers? Everybody raises their hand. And, and so it's just a matter as to how you frame it. But I think what's, what's really frustrating with the hiring process, especially coming out of school, is that it's very difficult uh, or that nobody solved this problem of figuring out how do you understand differentiators for people that are early on in their career where the traditional signals do not apply. And I think in the absence of those signals, what people do is they almost lose that individuality and they just group everyone together. Well, here's a whole bunch of people that went to this school and let's stack rank them by GPA and some subjective assessment on how they performed. And that is their career. And so you can obviously tell them I'm, I'm frustrated by the process. So I was fortunate enough. I just sidestepped it. I decided I wasn't going through it. motivation for entrepreneurship, maybe for some. Um, but that, that was kind of the big victory was that it really allowed me to say, I wasn't going to let an individual company set my goals or my objectives. I had that time by myself to figure out what my career could look like and would look like, as opposed to welcome to your first job. Here's what you need to learn. Here's what you need to do. Here's your career path. Here's your promotion path and getting sucked into that vacuum. And so that was liberating in that sense. It's probably the, the, the best thing that happened. Uh, the worst thing that happened, uh, the exact same thing. Um, wow. You find that when you move from a structured education system where people are telling you the benchmarks and the measures of performance, that you then have to create your own. And that is a painstaking process for anyone to say, how do you define success in your career? Uh, looking outside, this is something that drives a lot of social media. Uh, when you look at social media, you look at popularity and influencers. What makes social media unique and so attractive to people is that it defines a set of rules around conversation. If you say something that's funny on Twitter, or if you take a great picture on Instagram, if you conform to the rules of what the society deems as popular, you are rewarded with credits and more exposure. You're rewarded with a quantitative way to measure your progress. But it's by the system's rules, it's not necessarily your own. It's the system saying this is what it deems to be popular. When you go the entrepreneurial route, when you take yourself out of standardized jobs, you do deprive yourself of that particular system for better or worse, where you're now saying, well, how do I measure the success of my career? And just as there are simple heuristics on hiring, I think that a lot of college grads also have simple heuristics in terms of career progress. Is it like who made the most money? Who has the company with the best brand? Uh, who was able to buy the nicest place, nicest car, get the nicest title earlier? And, and it's difficult not to get caught up in that. And so you kind of look at it to be like, well, what, how do you judge your, your success? How do you judge? And if, is it just, did you raise the next round of money? Is it, you know, the progress of your company? And, and that part can be a little bit daunting because during times of difficulty, you don't have something to fall back on. It's not like, well, I didn't get that, that project, but I may still get that promotion when it's just you, when it's just a small team, you're like, you know, large victories and disappointments uh, have an outsized impact. You're right. You're right. And one of the things that I often complain as an entrepreneur is that, or I used to complain a lot more, is that there is no 
I got an A in this project or I got a B in this project. It is I did it or I failed miserably for everyone to know. And as a student, sometimes failing is extremely tough, especially when you don't have that metric. And I love that point you brought out about social media as well, because I feel like when when you mentioned it, I realized that we have not evolved from high school (laughs) much at all. No, no, we just moved to different mediums. That's all. Oh, no, it's terrible. Okay, I'm going to. The thing is, is those are self-reinforcing systems. The people that the people with, that are in strong positions, like the people that are photogenic and go to wonderful places on vacation with their family, benefit from those systems and they become self-reinforcing. Yes, they support those systems. They deem themselves influencers. That's just the reality of life. I think the, the hard part that anyone's going to confront when they get in these systems, well, first is a recognition that they exist. And the second part, which I think is really the crux of the conversation here, is where do they want to play? Mm-hmm. And under what motivations and under what circumstances? And what I would generally argue is I would argue two things for people. Because if people are going to say, okay, all right, so you told me that entrepreneurship is really hard. You told me you had no idea what you were going to do. And that career plans are bullshit. So how do I recover from this? <laughs> oh, no, you, you bursted what? everyone's bubble. That's what I said. I bursted everyone's bubble. And I, I say, all right, now that now we broke everything apart, let's start building it back up. I think what matters to people, I think what matters, what I found matters to me, sample size of one from a data guy, <laughs> is that you have to be very careful about who is setting the incentives and the metrics for your success. And when it comes to, let's use social media, we're going to pound on social media a little bit harder. When you go to social media, they set the metrics. They say it's the number of followers you have, the number of interactions you have with your content. That is the worth of your engagement on that platform. When you go into a full-time job, they will give you a promotional path and they will give you quarterly or annual reviews. When you're an entrepreneur, You may set it again to benchmarks of other successful entrepreneurs and how quickly they were able to raise their money. There have been some fantastic, especially D2C stories out of Penn. You may look at it in Silicon Valley. You may look at it by age, by the partners that they had, the space they were in, mentions in the Wall Street Journal. Any are legitimate. What I would say is the very first step to success is one is recognizing that these systems exist. And two is as much time as you may spend on a business plan or thinking about your career, Think about how you want to be measured in terms of your life and your career. And and I I look at, I say measured, but you see, I'm a data guy. I do this. But what is a metric for your success? Now, you're not going to have an answer right away. It's going to be something that may develop over years or decades. But the point is to be conscious of it in the sense that uh, in the absence of it, you will let other systems decide. You will let other systems decide and say your career is defined whether you get a promotion. Your career is defined whether you have a certain number of followers or whether you get that next round of funding, those may be nice benchmarks along the way. But I'll tell you, one of the things that defined a lot of the work that I did in my career was simply, well, how much time can I spend with my family? Now, even before I had a family, I knew it was one of the concerns to say, I didn't want a job where I was going to spend 60, 80 hours a week working. And all of a sudden, now I look at that within that lens and say, you can't pay me that amount of money to work 80 hours a week. It's not worth it. And I'll make those trade-offs. I think a lot of students have to just look at it within that context. What are other things that matter? What are you willing to sacrifice? And to hold firm to at least those principles of that moment in terms of looking at opportunities. And that way, you may be pursuing a, a new promotion at work. But if you look at that promotion and it goes against it, be like, hey, you can get promoted, but this is what it's going to require of you. 
you need to be able to walk away from that. Or if you're doing something that doesn't seem like the type of career or job you wanted to have, you need to be able to say, look, I want to stop this, even if it means giving up my current role or giving up my career momentum to reset and go do something meaningful because it's that important. The absence of having those rules and having those metrics and those understanding of self means that you will let other people decide it for you. And that just may not be the best way. So as long as you keep an open mind and you know what you at least look like as a life you want to have, then, then it's a little bit easier than saying, because nobody, nobody grows up. You don't meet, you, you don't meet, uh, I mean, I have yet to meet a kindergartner and I hope this doesn't happen. Now someone's going to write back and be like, here's a kindergartner. I've never met a kindergartner. It's like, what do you want to do? I want to be a partner at a large consulting firm. I've never met a kindergartner who said that either. You, know, you just, it's, it's an artificial thing. Um, it, but it's other people's be like, look, if you become a partner, then this, this, and this happens. It's like, was that really your dream? Was that really what you want to do? Void of all passion and excitement. I could go on for hours about this. You have other questions, so I won't. But, but I, no. really what I'm saying is being true to self matters a lot more than being true to a particular career path. No, I think that is a very, very well-needed message for many of our audience in a way. And you yourself, we, we talked about this a little earlier, made a pivot in your own career. You went back to grad school. You moved to Silicon Valley. Tell us a little bit about kind of the, the, the motivation or, or what made you realize that, okay, you know what, there, I need this pivot in a way. And, and how did you go about building or rebuilding a new kind of career path for yourself henceforth? You know, California was just, it was, it was California. And I could have gone either way. If somebody said New York, go to New York. Um, you know, when I grew up in Chicago, there are some phenomenal business schools there, right? You have Northwestern, you have Kellogg, you have University of Chicago. There's no shortage of opportunities. There's employment opportunities. My concern with that is that you need to have larger networks than just single cities. You need to be able to engage with people that have different values. And, and look, there's places I could have stretched a lot further than California. We don't want to overstate the value there. But for me is to say, when I saw the work that was coming out of Silicon Valley, when I saw some of the stuff that was just coming, the amount of money in California, the size of the economy, it was to say, I would love to be able to function in that type of system. And say, so, well, what's the easiest way? I could have easily found a regular job in California. That would have satisfied that same thing. I decided to say, I want to go to school. Uh, and, and that was just kind of where that pivot came from. Now, after school was a little bit more interesting because when I graduated UCLA, I went in in 2007. Economy was on fire. It wasn't the case <laughs> in 2009. Funny. Like you, you saw when I, when I went to tour campuses, you saw all the, the career visits, you know, from different banks and Lehman Brothers is coming, you know, Barry Stearns is coming. 2009, nobody showed up for recruiting. You know, you were I, I imagine they were a little busy with the small financial crisis. That yeah, they were just a little bit busy. They were a little bit busy, you know, with bankruptcy filings. And, and, and that was the reality of it. And so you don't have as many options at that point. It's not like you're sitting there like right now, I know students who have, you know, 10, 15 job offers to consider. I had two. You know, I could go back to Chicago or I could go work for this small little company in the Bay Area. I took the Bay Area company. I never lived in Silicon Valley, but that was the goal to integrate into that network to meet people within those systems. Uh, and so it required risk, but the payoff was there. Um, and so you just get those points. And that's what's great about graduation is you really get to put a large stake in the ground and say, what's important to you? Uh, in that case, for me, it was really breaking into this market and understanding what leads to this type of tech innovation. Nope, nope. And, then, and I think it also draws a little bit on that earlier point of really deciding for yourself and, and really figuring out what, what's the life that you want to live in a sense and then 
being true to that. So, so yeah. definitely well illustrated on that side. You then eventually ended up, I think it was your second job out of that, out of grad school that was at Google and sense, correct me if I'm wrong, which is what everyone dreams to one day achieve work at Google. You, you know, you see all the ads for the Google campus and, and it's like, a, it, it's literally like, like Disney world of Silicon Valley. It is, it is, it is pretty good. It's pretty it good. good. Uh, tell us a bit about how you, you ended up at Google. You said you went there without even knowing that, you know what, I would get a job in the, or, or what I would be doing. And, and that is insane to think when you are chief measurement officer now, but how was it like? It is, it is kind of crazy, right? Because you don't think about that. If you told me like before I left to go to California, you'd be like, all right, and we joked about this. Like, all right, Neil, it's like future me comes back. He says, all right, Neil, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to California for two years. And then after a couple of years, you're going to be working at Google. And then you're going to get this, this position and do all this huge, you're going to write a book. Like what the hell are, how, uh, how, how you, you can't connect those dots. You just can't do it. Um, and even if I, even if I start off and say, Hey, Neil, so what you want to do is you want to write a book, right? <laughs> then you start thinking, well, how do I write a book? Do I start taking classes on, on writing? Like, what am I supposed to do? And, am I a novelist? Yeah. And it leads, yeah. It leads you down a completely different path. Now in the Google case, it was a pretty simple thing. So there I was working at that company uh, in the Bay area, SourceForge. And I spent a lot of time as I wanted to just meeting people that worked at different tech companies. And what I realized was that a lot of people worked at Google and they were crazy smart. Now you kind of knew that, right? I knew that already because there was one woman in my MBA class that came from Google and just kind of like, wow, like that went to Harvard and then went to Google. It's like, okay, you're crazy smart. And you kind of, for example, you're like, I'm not that smart. I didn't go to, I didn't go to Harvard. I, I haven't worked at Google yet, but wow. And then you start interacting with more Google people and you're like, okay, wow, you're all really smart. And then you just start kind of like, all right, what do I have to do to make this work? And at some point, there are work with people. They're like, look, I can't get into it. I'm not that person. I didn't go to the best school. I didn't get the best grades. I don't have 20 years of experience cutting into the field. And that, that, is, that, that obviously would help if you had that. Uh, in my case, it was just I applied until they said yes. Uh, so I, I applied, you know, 35, 36 times. I have 35, by the way, rejection letters in my inbox. Those are fun things to keep as you go through. Um, but it was for me, which is just to say, I wasn't going to let a single position or single opportunity, because I came from undergrad where I saw how inefficient this career process was, right? right. You knew the hit chart people. And you see that, that and you're like, how is anybody going to look at a resume and define, you know, if, if I can fit? Like, I, first of all, I have to believe in myself that I can do this. But how would anybody in a career process figure this out? And so what I said is I said, look, if the career, if the, the hiring process is inefficient, then the only way that I can overcome it is simply by getting as much exposure to potential hiring managers and recruiters as possible. So that way somebody could recognize where I fit in. It meant that I had to be flexible in terms of my pursuits. They asked me many times, what job do you want? No, my, my goal wasn't a particular title or a particular role. My goal was to create value and to be part of this community, to be part of the system. And that reflected, they called me one recruiter. So I have five job postings. You applied to five of them. What do you really care about? A lot of undergrads are told, you, you pick one career and you go for it. I just said, you put me wherever you think that I can make the biggest impact given my background. And that gave them the flexibility, as it turned out, to put me into a position they didn't even have posted at the time. And the same thing, by the way, when you talk about careers as to how it played out, I, I was never one that was terribly interested in promotions. Like, I, I liked promotions, but I saw them to be artificial. If you know, The only thing real about promotions is, do I want to get paid more money? Yeah. Yeah. Give me more money. 
but but everything else apart from that is to say, well, do you do you really want to get promoted from from head of this to manager of that to senior of this to group of that? It's all artificial. I didn't care. What I cared about was interesting opportunities to go, do good work and meet good people. And so when opportunities came around, my metric for evaluating them was never, well, will this help me get promoted? Or will this help me manage a team? Those are artificial constructs. My question was, will this help me learn more? Will this help me meet interesting people? This is the reason I came to California. This is the reason I came to Silicon Valley. If you're going to help me meet and interact with interesting people, yes, I will go do that job. I don't, I don't need a full path to it. And, and that's just kind of what happened was that people could just kind of went from one role to another to another. And what you realize, and this is kind of a larger metric, the first one we talked about was just generally setting your own goals. Here's the second one is that in your career, your career will oscillate in cycles. You'll go through periods of, this is what businesses do, exploration and exploitation. Exploitation being a completely negative term. If anybody comes up with a better one, send it to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to use it. Um, but exploration are periods like where you are right now in school. You're learning a lot. You're learning a lot. And then what happens is exploitation. You get out into the market, they will pay you for that knowledge. But you're not going to learn as much. And then after a couple of years, your career kind of tapers off in that momentum, because unless you were diligent on it and investing in graduate school and your own degrees, where does that momentum go? And so you need to figure out how you grow again. And that was the same thing. So think about it. I went to undergrad, right? And then I tried applying everything I learned to entrepreneurship. And then I hit a natural wall where I was like, okay, I need a way to overcome this. I'm going to go back to grad school and get an MBA. And then I got hired in the Bay Area and say, okay, here's your job. We're going to pay you a good amount of money. Most I ever got paid to go work at this small startup in the Valley. But then you realize you're not learning as fast as everyone else. So I went to Google where I was like, everybody's keep on learning. And then once I got in there, I said, you know what? I I'm done with the exploitation thing. I just want to keep learning as much as I can learn. And that's what I invested in. And so that just allowed me to keep going on that curve all the way up. And then someone came around, they're like, hey, can you write a book about it? And then you say, oh, yeah, we're back into the exploitation thing where I'm just writing what I share. But you can see how you go through this process. And I think what happens oftentimes is people never rejoin. I'm going to go learn stuff. They think it's done. And so their career kind of stalls in that regard. Very, very well said. And you also mentioned your book. I think it's a good segue to talk about that. It is from your experience of thousands of clients that you worked with. And, 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 and I can only assume that the amount of data that you had to process internally to be the person who wrote the book was, it was out of this world, really. So from your point of view, tell us a little bit about how, how the book itself took formation, in a sense, the people that you met that inspired the study of it, in a way. And what do you hope that, that sending this work out then to the world will benefit the many, I would say, uh, uh, rabid fans of your work? To I, don't, I don't know if I have, I have fans of my work. I have, I have uh, people who appreciate it. Someone pointed something out, and this is during the early days of COVID, um, somewhat fatalistic, although in a certain sense it was true, where just there was a lot of concern and you saw uh, a lot of families, a lot of lives uh, disrupted by this tragedy. Somebody pointed out, and this is just kind of a passing comment they made to me, which stuck, was they said, you know, if, if, if any of us were to die at this point, which in the early days of COVID was within the realm of possibility, you had no idea where this was going to go. They said that all the experiences and everything that you learn that was accumulated would be lost. And how selfish is that? And you think about it, oftentimes we look at our career, we measured by the people in front of us to be like, look at these executives, how much they learned. And then you think even to your point, to all these listeners out here, 
you know, if you're, you're listening to this, if you're a student at Penn or anywhere else, um, you've arguably completed, you know, one of the most rigorous academic programs at one of the top universities in the world. And so there's that question to say, well, what about all those knowledge and learnings? Now, a lot of people are quick to discount it. I haven't learned a lot yet. Um, no, I would argue you have. And that there's always people, there's going to be as curious as you are about what I'm talking about. There are going to be high school students that are likely curious about your path, about people that admire you. You'd be like, God, if only I could get into that school. That is my goal. And when I get into that school, I want to be successful. What do I have to do? And it was that kind of mindset that brought the book apart which is to say, before I was kind of looking at it to be like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could build a reference guide for executives? And then it just became two real simple things. One is, could I share the lessons that I learned? And two is for the audience. The audience was originally my children. Because when you write to other audiences, when you write to CEOs, you try to write in a certain style. You try to influence and persuade and use their language. When you write to your kids, at least in my case, they're going to love me regardless but I don't want to lie to them. I don't want to be any short than anything short of hundred percent honest and transparent. I don't have an agenda with them. I just want them to learn those lessons. And that's what hopefully comes out in the book is to say, here's just stuff I learned. Now. Yeah, there's organization and there's lessons. Those are necessary components of teaching anyone, anything, but the larger motivation was, I think, to take a step back and to say, look, there may be more you have to learn. And we recognize that. And that will never, that process will never stop. That's what makes you a lifelong learner. But don't forget to take a look backwards and say, look at everything you've accumulated so far. Where does that exist in a record? How are you sharing that with other people? How are you mentoring and passing that to the next generation who's behind you saying, God, this is my dream school. How could I possibly get in? When I get in, what made you successful? What are you going to do next? You have those lessons today. And the reason, by the way, that they're so in demand from students is because nobody writes them down. Nobody writes them down. There's no honest recollection of it. There's people who want to, you know, boost their own self-image or talk about uh, other things. But there's very few stories about, hey, this is just what I went through and what I think you can learn from it. And there's a lot of audiences for that. And so that was really where the book came about. It was to say, hey, I had a year and a half and it turned out to be two and a half years of just working to say, here's some of the stuff I learned in my career so far. Here's as honest as I can tell you. It comes from thousands of companies in my experiences I think they're kind of funny. And a lot of people said, wow, I think they're really great. And so That's they packed so them in the book. No, no. And I, I've been reading the book. I've been having a lot of fun. Now that I know you read it, but I know your children are young. So now I'm like, oh, and now I know why I understand some of it in a sense. But but definitely, I, I think it's worth reading. And I definitely agree with that point that you said as well, that, that it's about sharing it beyond the audience that we normally think where the work we're doing is applicable to and 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 that is something that i've seen in in my in the work that i do that that i work with kids in a sense and we work with bringing a lot of these top executives to explain their stories their experiences the truth behind what they actually have, have learned have, have processed in a sense and just seeing someone who would otherwise never get the experience otherwise never really like engage with this knowledge really absorb something and change really the way that their life would be would have been is truly a testimony to how important the stories each individual has in a sense and the power that they have to the right audience to the to, to an audience that they may not have even expected to get a hold of those experiences exactly. so thank you so, so thank you for writing the book i would say <laughs> like, my on, pleasure on. it was it was fun i'm glad it's done i'm not sure i'll write a second one in five years and i forget about the pain of this one it's not an easy process to think about for anyone what did you learn like go write that essay what did you learn in your time at Penn, go write that essay and you realize how difficult it is, but you also realize the level of self-doubt that you'll have. You'll start writing things to be like, everybody knows this. 
This is common. This is simple. You'll start questioning, did I really learn anything? That's that voice that you got to learn to ignore, which is, yeah, you did. And those lessons that you think are commonplace are commonplace because you're surrounded by other wonderful students. As I'm surrounded by brilliant people at Google, I tell you, I'm one of the dumbest people there because I'm surrounded by some really incredible engineers, other business leaders, salespeople, uh, creatives. And then when you really talk to me, you get to understand me, you realize that what you have to offer, what you have to share is a lot. Uh, it's just getting over that hurdle to realize the value of what you've learned. Beautifully said. And, and um, any tips for authors out there or people who want to follow in your footsteps, not necessarily writing a book, but taking that step to share, to, to, to bring the experiences out? Because as you said, very uncertain world. We never know when. It's a very uncertain world. I, I would say this. I would say the setting the audience is more important than ever. Uh, we look at setting the audience. When I went to business school, was setting the audience, largest market possible, best people that can help you. I think, in, in fact, setting an audience, at least with writing a book, I found it to be more therapeutic to be like, who is it that you can be completely honest with, that you can share your experiences with? And the second part was to figure out how you translate the voice, what I like to call the restaurant or bar conversation to the written word. I think sometimes when we write, when we write emails, there's a certain formality. Business schools certainly teach it as to how you're supposed to communicate. But then you realize when you go out for drinks with somebody or you sit down at a dinner with them, you talk in a more casual, open way. Right. You don't you don't sit down and you don't like like. So how was your day? Well, let me show you three bullet points. And then there will be a conclusion <laughs> and then we'll have time at the end of dinner for a little bit of a discussion in Q&A. That doesn't happen. And so you need to overcome that to be like, how do you bring the same person that's having that conversation with someone where your friends, your family members, they love it and they, they get pulled into those stories. How do you replicate that in writing? And that is a skill that I wish were more developed. It's not business schools teach very formulaic writing in particular. It's like, well, this is how you write engineering programs, very formulaic for that discipline. But if you teach it, telling a story, you already have these skills inside. It's just how you forget all that other stuff. <laughs> it's just how you forget all that other stuff. I, I have someone that's going to be a business writing teacher, third one. Hey, dear Mr. Hoyer, I'm ready to listen to it. So we've got the HR people, the business writing. And the, the, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. And it happens. It happens. People reach out to me and they're like, I disagree with your guidance. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's amazing. The more point of views, the better, because I'm not saying anything that I'm saying is right. I've only done this once. So if I were to say, Neil, could you replicate your success? No, no, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. And there's a million different times where things could have gone in different directions. But what I would say is the same way that all your students, all your classmates, what they do is they don't provide. And if any business leader tells you this is what you should do, ignore them. You want to gravitate towards those business leaders and say, this is, these are things you should consider. Come to your own conclusions. Come to your own decisions. Weigh it against what you think matters. There's no truths. There's no laws in this world and um, how we function. It's just you're collecting ideas and then you're deciding what matters. Very well said. And, and then kind of to, to, as we kind of wrap up this conversation and, and bring it to its very sad, natural end, one of the two themes that, no, you're very entertaining to talk to. I actually, we'll, we'll do this again. We'll, we'll, do this, we'll do this again. It's fun. But go ahead. Your, your, la your last question, please. No, like one of the, the two kind of threads that I that I've from this conversation is number one, being true to yourself, knowing what you want, going in and really putting yourself there. And the second would, would be kind of like finding the network that supports that and, and, and leveraging that in a sense to achieve the first thing. How do you balance both in a sense? Where, where do you find the people that help you stay true to yourself? And how, and how do you even go about making that decision? You, you can't. Um, because you, you, you tend to gravitate towards people you agree with. 
yeah. and people that share your worldview. And now all of a sudden you're in an echo chamber. The only way I think you can overcome that is by challenging yourself to always meet new people. I think that networks, you know, we talk about huge alumni networks in schools and then people get out into the field. It's like, how many people do you talk to? Five, six people I always get along with that went into my field or understand who I am. And that's fine. We have those people. But what I challenge you to is always continue to find new avenues to meet people and to build systems that encourage it. So for some, it's, hey, there's, here's professional groups that I can network with. I want to be involved in my university after I leave. Uh, others, you know, they go into fields and take classes well beyond their core expertise. Um, but that's an area, as much as developing in yourself and continuing learning, networking is one of the easiest ways to accelerate it. Why? Because other people can provide you with Cliff Notes versions of their lives. You can share in the knowledge of a tribe saying, hey, I, I, I touched this over here. It was hot and it was bad. Don't do that. And it's like, well, shit, I'm glad I didn't have to learn that myself. That's, that's the value of these interactions. But imagine what happens if you just say, hey, your, your network is five people versus 50 people versus 500. Imagine how worse off you are with the smaller numbers. It's just people need to be reminded of these things. And again, not everyone will have this problem. I had this problem. But I just want you to tuck it into the back of your mind, again, for your consideration, that as you're going out into the field, realize that networks are one of the easiest way to accelerate your growth. They require systems that you have to build. There's no one size fits all. You just, it's something you want to make a priority. Good note to end on. And definitely something we can all learn from. And I especially like how you said, don't just stick to that box that you have. Like, like, like meet different types of people, meet different walks of life in a sense. So very, very lovely like I would say end note to our session and thank you so much for joining us for this conversation as I said I had lots of fun listening to you in a sense and in your experiences and I can only hope you had a fraction of uh, the amount of excitement and enjoyment that me and the listeners probably have had from the conversation thank you so with that, I guess we'll wrap up our session today. And to our audience, thank you as well for joining us. If you enjoyed today's session, let us know if you can in the comments. Reach out to us if you want to. And as always, see you guys again next Thursday at 10 p.m. ET. With that, this is Changing Reality, signing off. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.